And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. Uh, good morning, of course. It's Wednesday. It's hump day. We're halfway through the week. Is uh, Wow, we already get ready to wrap up. Uh, at least for my kids, it's the last week of school. So... I know there's I know there's some kids already out of school. Depends on how your school, you know, what your school district is. But uh, yeah, so they're very excited. <laughs> Two days left, and then it's, it's summer. Um, I have bad news for my kids. They'll be doubling their hours at work this summer. <laughs> they're, they were all running around the house yesterday. He's like, "Yes, almost out of school. I have all this free time." I'm like, "Nope, you're gonna be working extra hours." So. Anyway, think twice. Exactly, they're gonna be they're gonna be productive and useful this summer. <laughs> For Whether sure. they like it or not, they, they don't have a choice. <laughs> so, I think what there, there's actually a good side of, of this making kids work. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, first of all, you know, if just so you have the backstory, I make my kids get jobs once they turn of age, so that they can pay for their own car. They have to pay for their own insurance. That's on them. They don't want to drive. They don't have to work. So that's kind of a that's kind of. The problem. But I don't haul them around either anymore either. So they they have a, a choice. But so but it's interesting though too because now that they're working right, um, they're starting to become much more independent about you know what they do and and what they spend money on instead of you know coming to me and going hey, can you know I go buy some new clothes for school or if they go buy their own stuff yeah. So, you know, this has had a lot of really good side effects, but I haven't, you know, and, and it's just, you know, we're getting there, right? It's, there's still a few little flaws in the plan. So. It's, a, it's a process. It's a process, but they're learning and they're getting the yeah. understanding of, you know, man, I work hard for this money. So mm-hmm. um, maybe I don't want to spend it and maybe I want to save a little bit of it. So and, and so the, the process is working and they we'll, appreciate I'll, where things come from. It, they do. And uh, so we'll we'll see how this goes, but uh, we're trying to get you know I'm trying to get them ready to go to college yeah. here. So hey, good for you. Be, be just shortly out of the house, we'll be empty <laughs> nesters. So <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. All right, couple of things. Uh, markets are going to open up again this morning. Again, we've we've talked about this for the last couple of weeks. You know, we were talking about getting this uh, buy signal on the S and P 500, and that would give the markets a short term lift. Now, I don't want you to get too comfortable here. Um, we're, we're going to get this short-term lift in the markets and yes, could even set new highs in the markets, but I want you to be a little bit careful here because we're about to move into midsummer. And if we go back and look at summer of last year, um, it was a pretty sloppy event. I mean, if we went through May and June and, and July, we had uh, several kind of big drawdowns in the markets. So, you know, I, I think that's a real possibility here. We've had a very strong advance in the market since November of last year. Market are well ahead of them. A lot of this run-up was in expectations of much stronger earnings growth. And we're seeing that, right, because of the year-over-year reopening now, and we're seeing uh, better performance in earnings on a year-over-year basis because of where we were last year. Uh, you know, as we're looking at earnings this quarter, we're compared to really bad earnings last quarter. So, we're, you know, this, this is going to continue to really kind of moderate here, most likely, as economic growth numbers begin to peak and and as well as earnings numbers begin to peak and and more importantly expectations for earnings 
going into 21, uh, the rest of this year and into 2022, um, are really, really elevated here. So again, as we get into kind of peak earnings here, that's going to start to, to, to see these earnings kind of ratchet back, these estimates kind of ratchet back. So be careful what you're paying for here because you're paying premium prices right now for expectation, uh, you know, really for earnings expectations that are very likely not to actually mature. Um, but I wanted to run through a couple of other markets this morning because as we have been really kind of talking about here, we've really been focused on really the S&P and the NASDAQ here over the last couple of weeks in particular um, because we were talking about earlier this year that we wanted to rotate out of small caps. Small caps had that big run up as the expectation of reopening the economy was, was coming around. We were doing this infrastructure spending. Um, so we had this big run up. Small caps got well ahead of themselves. And back in February, we suggested, you know, basically kind of that that was going to start underperforming large caps and so we started kind of focusing more on March caps and 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 really since then uh, small and mid caps have really continued just to really not do much they haven't gone down uh, they just haven't really performed that well at all it's really just been this kind of sideways grind here for several months um, very much on an elevated buy signal here so very likely this you know, is going to continue here uh, at least through the rest of the summer. Um, taking a look at in emerging markets as well, pretty much the same idea. Had a big run up in emerging markets, same idea, this reopening of the, of the world economy. Um, but really since then, that's not been a great place to be. It's not that they've hurt you, they just haven't performed, right? I mean, so if you've been in the S&P or the NASDAQ, you've performed better uh, than being in emerging markets really since earlier this year. Um, also, um, if you take a look at uh, mid caps, as I said, kind of the same thing here. Um, mid caps have performed a little bit better, but again, over the last several months, uh, really not as well as large caps. So again, it's just really kind of been this, this mitigation of risk across markets. One area we keep talking about here is to watch, because this is really curious, is that bonds are improving in price, which means yields are declining. And that really doesn't you know, uh, suggest that this economic powerhouse of strength that we're going to have over the next few quarters are actually going to mature as expected. And you know, when, when yields are trading, between 1.5 and 1.6, that suggests about what economic growth is going to be about a year from now. So again, this whole idea we're going to have this massive economic recovery, yields are telling us that may not be the case. Now, this, so, so this could certainly turn around and go higher, but if you take a look at the Chinese credit impulse, that has peaked. And that has been a big source of the commodity purchases. China's been consuming commodities like crazy. That's been running up a lot of these commodity prices. Part of this expectation, this economic recovery, is, is really being reflected by their, by their credit impulse. That's beginning to roll over. So as that rolls over, we're likely going to see here over the next few months more deflationary pressures than inflationary pressures. Um, peaking commodity prices likely here now, so more more than likely than not, we're going to see downward pressure on commodity prices through the rest of this year. And that's going to suggest that yields are about to start going lower here. So again, it won't be surprising to see yields lower here, bond prices higher. In fact, that's why just recently we started adding some duration to our bond portfolio as well, looking for this kind of this change in yield. So we started kind of buying into some, some longer duration bonds. We're going to continue to add to that position here as this continues to mature. But we've got a decent buy signal here right now that suggests that with the the TLT as an as a proxy for bonds now above its 50 and 20 day moving average
average, there's cleared some resistance here that we may see better bond prices. And that's also going to equate to weaker equity prices uh, later on the summer. So again, that's why we suggest here, you know, use this rally as a clearing rally, rebalance portfolios, reduce some risk. And we're not there yet. We're only about a third of the way through the signal on the S&P. So we've got a little bit more to go here, probably another week um, to this market. And then as we get into June or July, certainly an expectation for a 5 to a 10% correction, well within context of norms, much like we saw last year. Um, but that'll occur sometime this summer. It could be June, could be July, could be August. But somewhere this summer, we're in a little bit bigger correction um, that will provide a better opportunity to put equity risk at work versus where we are today. All right, coming back after the break, I'm going to pick up with Danny Ratliff. He's here. We've got to talk about inflation. We've got to talk about uh, taxes. We've got a lot of stuff to get into this morning. Uh, also, a little bit about taper talk. More of that going on from the Fed. They're starting to talk about taper now. Also suggest that there may be more pressures than we expect currently building up in the markets. Be right back after the break. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Don't go away. Listening to the Real Investment Show. You could be one of the seven in ten people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than seventy-six hundred dollars a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care. June. 24th at noon. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. the show this morning. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Danny Ratliff joining me this morning as well. Uh, trying to get into a little bit of what's going on around the world. Good morning, Danny. Good morning. How are you? Doing good. So uh, Fed, uh, one of the Fed members, uh, Clarita, out and saying that he was surprised by the inflation data. Uh, of course, uh, what we saw was a 4.2% jump in prices in the in the last report. Now, uh, you know, he says he's surprised. Nobody else was really surprised, right? We've been talking about this for months now is that when you do, and, and again, you have to be careful with these numbers. These are year-over-year comparisons. Where were we this time last year, right? We were yeah. in the middle of the shutdown, right? There was no economic activity. I mean, restaurants were completely shut down. Gyms were shut down. Everything was shut down. So, not surprisingly, prices of goods and services got extremely depressed. So now when we look at them on a year-over-year basis, we go, wow, big jump. And, and nobody was really surprised by this except... Except the people who except, are in charge, yeah, right? Except the people that are in charge of monetary policy. They're surprised by the... But, you know, then he comes out, he backs this up saying, hey, you know what? I need to see more data. You know, look, the, the, the bottom line is, is that the, the Fed is at risk of making a policy mistake here. The inflation that we're seeing is transitory. It will go away because a lot of this is driven by year-over-year comparisons. 
And yes, there are some inflationary pressures due to, you know, supply chain disruptions due to, you know, um, the lack of, of commodities at this point. But I was just talking about a second ago, if you take a look at China's credit impulse, which is a great proxy for commodity prices and commodity consumption because they're big buyers of commodities, that's begun to roll over. That suggests that over the next six to eight to 10 months, we're about to start to see weaker commodity prices. In fact, we're already seeing it. Lumber prices have declined here. Um, we're seeing you know prices of other commodities on the decline as well. So that's going to lead to more deflationary pressures in the economy. And then that's going to be exacerbated by the fact that now we're going to start comparing year over year inflationary prices to much higher levels, because now we're going to when later this year, we're going to start comparing prices to where they are you know, this time last year and so forth and so on. And then as, and, and then the more we move forward, the higher those prices are getting. So as an example, lumber prices went up 400% over the course between the summer and just recently. So think about what we're going to look at in your, your lumber prices when we start comparing it to, say, January, February of this year, right? It's going to be, you're going to have big deflationary pressures in a lot of these inputs into CPI, over the course of the next, you know, 12, 18 months. And that's one of the reasons why, as I was saying earlier, if you take a look at, at 10-year Treasury rates, they've actually been falling here lately. Um, you know, we're trading about 1, 1.5, 1.6. And as I said, we've been adding some longer-duration bond exposure to our portfolios as well because what interest rates are telling you is where the economy is going to be in 12 to 18 months. And in 12 to 18 months, we're going to be trading back towards about 2% economic growth. So a lot of these expectations of blowout inflation, blowout economic growth, blowout earnings, that's all going to start to reverse over the course of the next uh, next couple of quarters. You know, what's interesting is that he actually said that, um, I think he said as well that he was startled by it. Yeah. As if, as if he was awoken, you know, yeah. it's like, whoa, ho, hey, how'd this happen? <laughs> um, but do you, do you expect this to be a roller coaster and what I mean by that is that since we're getting so much and so quick from an inflationary push from year over year numbers, then we get the deflationary. Then over time, that should smooth out, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course, we'll have this. It's going to be very much like that. We're going to have this big kind of inflationary push. Then we'll have a much more exacerbated deflationary pressure. And then yeah. we'll start to stabilize back out at that probably slightly sub 2% economic growth rate. Um, so we'll, we'll get back to about 1.8, 1.9% economic growth on a year-over-year basis on average, right? That, you know, some years will be higher, some years will be a little lower, and we'll kind of ebb back and forth. But that's where we're going to kind of trim back to. It was interesting, too, yesterday, uh, the CBO um, actually came out, with, and I'm writing a report on this now, but they actually came out with their prediction for debt going into 2050, so, uh, like I said, I, I'm, I'm working on this kind of this, you know, piece now. But what we're going to find out, and, and what's interesting is, is that debt run is $140 trillion of national debt by 2050. So, that will mean an economy that's growing basically at about $35 trillion, which will be up sharply from the $21 trillion where we are now, right? By 2050, we'll almost double the economy, but we're going to triple quadruple, quintuple, I don't know, what is it, quintuple, uh, the it's national debt, yeah, but basically you're going you're gonna to create five times the amount of debt for the amount of economic growth that you're going to get out of it, and that's just, a, this is just the, the trend and direction that we're heading because more and more of this is going towards things that are non-productive investments, social welfare, 
you know, kind of checks the households and, and we'll talk about, you know, uh, the child tax credits are about to start here in the next month or so. You know, we keep spending more and more money, more and more debt that doesn't create economic prosperity. And that's going to be this problem that goes forward. And that's why this can continue to suppress economic growth until we get to sub 1%. By the time we and, and if you follow the trend of economic growth, we will be sub one percent economic growth by twenty fifty. That's scary when you think about it. I mean, we're we're concerned about the debt levels now, and think about the population growth. We have wait, demographic no, so, issues no, wait, already. Wait, can, can I correct you? You're worried about where the debt levels Clearly are. Now. Nobody else. Nobody is. else is. Yeah, that's I mean, true. I, I, I was uh, tweeting a couple of our congressmen, and they're like, "Yeah, I know. If our colleagues would only understand, you know, the difference between investing and debt, you know." It's, I, well, yeah, yeah, but hold on. But like, wait, you need to be talking. How did talking. you vote? I know, yeah. right? You need to be talking to these guys. Yeah, nobody else is in Congress is worried about this. Just you and me. Well, we've talked about our experience with different congressmen and, and, and people in general. Yeah. Like, oh, yes, yeah, so what do you guys think about this? And you tell them, they're like, oh, yeah, well, here's what we're going to do. And you're like, wait a second. <laughs> you didn't want to know what we thought. You already, you already know what you're doing. Exactly. But so, you know, switching gears a tad bit, we, they keep continuing to talk about this infrastructure deal. Republicans put something out again, so it's, yeah. it's vastly smaller than what the the Democratic bill is of two point three trillion, which has been pared down and pared down. Uh, I think the Republicans were initially looking for a five hundred eighty six billion dollar bill. Now they're looking at a trillion dollar bill. Yeah. Um, and and they take a lot of stuff out of this, though. There's four hundred billion that they had for uh, the elderly. Mm. There there was a lot of things that were not dubbed infrastructure. And so this is looking there to... Was, there was very... out of. Well, let me just clarify this for you. Out of the $2.3 trillion official bill, the one that was yeah. out 6% was actually infrastructure. There you go. Right? The rest of it was not infrastructure. If you threw in the electric vehicle stuff, okay, you got to 9% infrastructure. But but here's... here's Look, and this is one of the things... I heard this great line on the on out of the media the other day. They said... Congress is struggling with the definition of infrastructure. <laughs> All right, let me the explain. Here, here is the definition of infrastructure. Okay, it's really simple. In fact, I tweeted this to Congressman Warren Davidson because he's he's very much behind the sound idea of sound money. Yeah, good for him. Right, he gets it. Right, he understands it. But here's the definition of infrastructure. If anybody ever asks you, what's the definition of infra infrastructure? Here's what infrastructure is. It is any investment by government that has a stream of cash flows that pays for itself over time. I.e., think about something like a nuclear power plant. If I build a nuclear power plant, it costs $2 trillion, whatever it is. I mean, throw some insane price tag on it to build a nuclear power plant. That's going to generate electricity for cities. People are going to pay a, a tax, right, a, a, a fee to use that electricity, which goes back to pay for the debt that was used to pay for that nuclear power plant. Eventually, the cash flows will not only pay off the debt, it will create a profit for government. That is actually a beneficial investment by government. That is an infrastructure plan. What is not an infrastructure project? Something that has no return on investment or requires a tax credit to incentivize people to buy it, like electric vehicles. Tesla only makes money because they get credits from the government that incent people to buy the cars. And they also get tax credits that they sell for massive amounts of dollars. And that's another giant scam, by the way, of the government, which is this whole idea of carbon credits. So if I'm a company that is carbon friendly, right? I get these carbon credits. 
Great. Danny over here runs the most polluting coal company on the planet. Right now, we should be all over Danny to reduce his emissions. But in order for Danny to keep doing what he's doing, all he has to do is buy my excess carbon credits and he can keep polluting like there's no end of the world. And so he just pays me an abnormal amount of money for my credits so he can meet the standards. So you're getting subsidized for not making any money. Bingo. Not running a good business. But so because, Tesla sells yeah. all of their carbon credits for about 100% profit. Wow. And that's where all their profit comes from, is from selling their carbon credits. But, but, this is, but this is the giant scam we have now created in the government. Instead of requiring Danny just to be more efficient and to reduce his carbon footprint, all he has to do is take some of his excess coal profits and buy carbon credits. What good are you doing? And by the way, China is the, uh, the biggest carbon footprint out there, period. Uh, the carbon footprint of America hasn't changed in about 30 years. It's been flatlined. We've been getting smarter and better and more efficient and cleaner. I mean, we've gone from, from coal-burning plants to clean-burning plants. But we've yeah, done, we're paying I, everybody I else to, do, to, to oh, reduce your emissions. Look at us. Except we're gonna, for China. Yeah. <laughs> China is like, oh, you do whatever you want. <laughs> We don't need your money. No, 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 nobody cares about China. There's your problem. Misalignment of incentives. Okay, just remember that. Misalignment of incentives. This is your problem. Be right back after the break. Show. You could be one of the 7 in 10 people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care. June 24th at noon. Real investmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. A modern day warrior mean me try to taste Tom Sawyer mean me by. And welcome back to the show this morning. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Danny Ratliff joining me this morning. Futures pointing up a little bit this morning here at the Open. We're up about uh, 13 points on the S&P, uh, about 50 points on the uh, NASDAQ. So we'll 
see a little bit of a positive open day. And then this kind of just kind of goes along with this idea. You know, we've been talking about, you know, our money flow signal was getting ready to turn positive and we get a little bit of lift out of the markets. And, and you know, we don't expect a lot here. And it's been, a you know, the, the, the rally we've gotten has been a bit challenged. It's not been, you know, just a terrific rally. It's been very weak on average. So we don't expect a lot more out of this. But again, just you know, kind of use this rally. And what we'll be doing is, is looking to reduce positions, you know, take profits off the table, um, kind of, you know, kind of rebalance risk in portfolios because we still think, and again, we don't know for certain, right? If we knew for certain, it'd be really easy to manage money. We'd be all in or all out, right? <laughs> exactly. But there's a very high probability that we're going to get a 5 to 10% correction sometime this summer, uh, primarily because it's been so long since we've had one, right? It, and just, you know, markets generally have a 5 to 10% correction just about every single year, and we haven't had one since summer of last year. So, um, you know, where markets are with the fact we're about to see peak earnings, peak economic growth, et cetera, very likely that we're going to get some disappointment later this summer uh, that'll lead to a little bit bigger correction. That'll be a better opportunity to put some money to work uh, than particularly you know, right here. So just, you know, again, we're getting a bit of a rally as we expected. Just don't expect a lot more. So. Well, so, so Lance, we, we talk a lot. We did our can of coffee this weekend. If you guys didn't see it, it should be up on the website later this afternoon. Uh, we'll have our encore video. This is uh, something that, you know, historically we've taken questions on the show mm -hmm. and we stopped. Well, we, we, we stopped taking phone calls because we're on two different stations Correct. and and we don't have a phone bank. Sitting, you know, I don't have an operator sitting here able to answer calls because I have to run. Hello? A yes. <laughs> we got one guy yep. running our <laughs> one guy running the whole ship. Right. So Correct. No, this, but this is called increased productivity and lower labor costs. <laughs> so you're seeing it in action right now. Got to give up something. But look, we know we know you guys have lots of questions. So one, you go to realinvestmentadvice.com. You can always ask a question right there. Lance answers very quickly. He's extremely prompt. But you can also go, if you have a question live while we're on air, go to our YouTube channel, The Real Investment Show, and ask a question. We'd love to get to it. Uh, in fact, we do have one today. So Trevor Walden asks, can Lance Details comment about rates turning down, but taper talk tends to suggest higher rates? Is this a short-term slash long-term variance, or can both happen as in taper without higher rates? Um, well, actually, uh, great qu question, Trevor. Uh, actually, if you go back in history, um, what you'll see is if you'll take a look at when the Fed starts lowering interest rates and starting quantitative easing, rates always rise. When do rates actually fall? Now, this is kind of the dichotomy, right? Because the belief is, is that the Fed's dropping interest rates to zero to suppress interest rates to help stimulate the economy. It actually has the exact opposite effect. When they drop their rates, 10-year Treasury rates tend to rise because of the shift of risk exposure from bonds into stocks, right? Everybody goes, oh, Fed's doing QE, so I'm going to run into stocks. So they go sell their bonds to go buy stocks. So we generally see interest rates rise during periods of QE and this type of thing. When they begin to taper and when they begin to raise interest rates, the exact opposite occurs. People go, oh, crap, better go sell my stocks and buy bonds for safety. Yields typically fall during a tapering quantitative easing tightening cycle. So it's not that they will happen. It's not like it's, it's not the one or the other. It's generally they work in conjunction with each other because it's a shift in demand for risk that causes the flight to safety. 
You know, but let's, let's expound on that just a tad bit. So we talk, go back and look at taper tantrums of mm-hmm. the past. And that's been rather fluid as well, or transitory in Fed speak, in the sense that, you know, they, they will go to taper in the moment that things start to unwind and say, whoa, hey, we're done, yeah, no yeah. more, right? Yeah, that's, this is always the problem with the Fed is that, you know, the Fed has two mandates. Uh, their mandate is price stability, inflation, right? Keeping prices under control and also full employment. Okay, let's talk about that for a second. What exactly is full employment, right? Full employment should be that when you take a look at the labor force of the country, so you take a look at everybody, say, over the age of 18 years of age, um, pick another number, 25 years of age, right? Let's just, let's just throw out all the old people and all the young people, and let's just look at those between the ages of 25 and 54. Between the ages of 25 and 54, you would expect that largely a, a very major percentage of those individuals should be working, right? So 75%, 80%. Right. Oh, you're going to have a few that are going to be stay at home moms, stay at home dads, you know, whatever. But you would suspect that a large percentage of the 25 to 54 year old population would work. Currently, right now, we have about 47 percent employed. So what is full employment? That actually has been falling. The, the actual levels of full time employment have been falling since 1990. Um, we actually peaked in. Uh, full employment, you know, full-time employment to population back in the, in the late 90s, and that's been declining. We're now going to set a new trend lower, at a, 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 sorry, a new lower level trend for full-time employment, and we're going to call this full employment now because as we shrink the labor force, because not because people are falling out of, you know, people are dying and and going away. The labor force is shrinking because people are simply falling out of it. We simply no longer count them. Danny used to work a full-time job. He was part of the labor force. He now works three part-time jobs, driving an Uber, a Lyft, and delivering FedEx packages. There are people that do this for a living. He no longer counts as part of the labor force because he works three part-time jobs. So he's no longer counted, even though he's there. Then there's a whole other group of people that are simply outside the labor force because they haven't worked or sought work in a while, and they've been living on government benefits or living in their parents' basements or whatever it is, right? So there's a whole large group of individuals in this country that should be working but aren't, and we simply don't count them. They're invisible, right? And these are in the millions of individuals that are just over there. So, you know, when when we start talking about full and full, you know what full employment is, we were at sub five percent employment. That means that ninety five percent of the working population was working prior to COVID. That wasn't full employment. So now we've got to set a new level of full employment. Now it's three. <laughs> but theoretically, if the labor force goes to zero, we will have a hundred percent employment. Think about that for a second. According to the way the, the Fed measures employment. And their mandate is to have full employment. If the labor force participation rate falls to zero, we will have a 100% employment rate in the country. Now, obviously, we're not employed. (laughs) Nobody's working, right? But we've got full employment according to the measure. So this is the problem with the Fed. The Fed is, is saying that they can control inflation. They can't. They have no control over consumer behaviors. What you buy, when you spend, what you don't spend. They have no control over inflation. All they can try to do is hope to taper it or slow it down by hiking rates and slowing economic growth. 
creating employment. They have no control over Danny hiring more employees for his company. What the Fed does has no 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 proxy on whether his business demands more employees or not. So the whole the whole premise behind their mandates is is a false narrative. So what's the one thing they focus on that they can control? That's their third mandate, which is unwritten and is not part of their congressional charter, but that's supporting asset prices. And by supporting asset prices, they hope to create confidence in the economy that Danny will now go out and hire people. But again, Danny doesn't hire people just because the stock market's up. Danny hires people because he needs an employee at work because his demand outstrips his ability to supply that need. And if that isn't there, it has no bearing on what the, the market is doing. It's what the economy is doing. Well, so speaking of that need, I mean, there's a lot of different variances right now. So cons- consumer confidence is still relatively very high, 117.2 versus 117.5. But future expectations, plummet. they dropped considerably. Right. So that would that would lead to or suggest that maybe we're not going to see the hiring, the the boom that we were hoping for, because people may say, hey, this has been really good from a market recovery. Okay, well, let's talk about why the expectations are dropping. Their expectations were rising. Why? Because we're coming out of this, this pandemic, right? No, Recover- they were getting checks from the government. Yeah, what, what, what is now ending in the future, very near future, well, or ending now, actually? Maybe. 22 states have already killed the, un- their, the unemployment, the federal unemployment, unemployment benefits, benefits, right? Yeah. So over the course of the next six months, uh, going into sep- six months, uh, four months, heading into September, the rest of the unemployment benefits go away. No more stimulus checks are in the yeah. pipeline. So now expectations are, wait, what, no more money? Wait a second, I got to go back to work? Go back to work? This is terrible. This economy sucks. (laughs) So that's where we are. But yeah, that's why expectations are dropping. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. (laughs) When you put it that way. (laughs) I have to work? This is terrible. Who thought of this idea? That's why socialism rocks, man. You don't work in socialism. Well, you also don't get the things you really want or need, probably. So, you know, I think I'll take what we have. you don't have to work for it. I'd rather work. Well, yeah. I would go crazy. Because you're a greedy bastard. But other than that, I mean. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) See, that's that's the difference between capitalism and socialism. Socialism is I'll take what you give me so I can sit at home and do nothing. Capitalism is I want more. Yeah. So it just depends on what side of the fence you're on. If you're happy with just, you know. Well, but here's what I love about capitalism is that you can bust your tail. You can do the right thing. You can do the things and put in the work and you can be rewarded for it. And that's one thing that I think that many people fail to see is that they want it all because it's easy, because it's so I want it now. Look at all the people who are self-made millionaires on on social media right? that are that are renting a jet or renting something for five minutes to take a picture with it. And it gives this illusion of grandeur. But, you know, you can get there. You just got to bust your tail. And that's the thing that nobody wants to do. Exactly. And that's also the risk of capitalism. You can also bust your tail and fail. But you know what? You can get back up again and keep keep rolling. Right. <laughs> the debate of capitalism. <laughs> don't, don't get me started, man. I love it. No, it's all good. I agree with you. Be right back after the break. Don't go away.
Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. You could be one of the 7 in 10 people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at Real investmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care. June 24th at noon. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. the show this morning. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Danny Ratliff joining me as we already wrap up today's edition. Of, we kind of rambled a bit this morning off on a couple of different topics. And uh, a little bit. <laughs> but, you know, we, we get there eventually. Uh, you had uh, a, a something on Bitcoin this morning I thought was interesting. Well, you know, what's interesting is that there's, there's not a whole lot of tax legislation around cryptocurrencies. And so one of the things that, you know, crypto investors could take advantage of, especially with this last dip we saw over the last week, is that... Okay, can, can we classify that correctly? That was a bear market. That was a 50% decline in the price of Bitcoin. That That hey, is an all-out... Lance, Lance, undeniable. You, hold on, man. You don't, un, you don't clearly don't understand cryptos, okay? No, I don't. I mean, I, I clearly, no, I clearly do look, understand them. What I'm saying that you no, got to hold on. You never sell. You're going to be okay. <laughs> no, it's fine. But this is this is the interesting part of it. Bitcoin went through a a a full fledged bear market in two days. Yeah, it was like. It was incredible. I mean, this is this is an amazing amount of volatility. And we were talking about this on the show earlier this week. And, yeah. and this is a reason that, you know, at least for now, you can't use Bitcoin as a, as a medium of exchange, uh, you know, to run businesses. Right. And, you know, Tesla's pulled out of accepting Bitcoin. And, and you know, and, and this is going to be problematic when, you know, until, you know, it settles down. You've got to get the volatility to settle down. Um, you've got to get a wide enough adoption of Bitcoin that the volatility becomes very muted um, and it starts to actually trade like a dollar, right? The yep. dollar doesn't swing in value 30 percent a day. So but eventually when you get there, right, you'll have something that'll work. But, you know, it, it's quite amazing the amount of volatility you have. If you think about the stock market, we had two 50 percent corrections, one in 2000, one in 2007. It took months to go through that process and you did it with Bitcoin in a week. So, you know, it's it's. It's it's pretty it's pretty interesting here, um, and it's, and again, as to your point though, this is really going to kind of you know there's a lot of late you know people that got in very late into Bitcoin that are now underwater because of you know stuff they see on social media right they uh, interesting uh, article out this morning on Morning Consult uh, talking about where investors get the majority of their information. More and more investors, particularly younger the younger generation, millennials and Gen Z, are getting their information off of people on TikTok and Instagram and Facebook, right? And the Daniel was talking about the second ago, you know, people standing out in front of their jets or showing their, you know, lavish, you know, suite of cars that they own. It's like, oh, they're successful. Look, they have all these cars, but do they actually own them, right? Um, a lot of these guys make a lot of money by what's called affiliate marketing. So they build up a big follower base. They start creating affiliate relationships and they get paid by the affiliates to refer people to buy their products, whatever those products or services are. So, 
about 85%, and by the way, if you want to do this, you can do this yourself. About 85% of companies have affiliate programs. So if you go open up a social media channel and build up a little bit of a following, you can start uh, advertising products for through affiliate programs and get paid for referrals. So you can give yourself a little nine to five side job. You too you can be a social media influencer. You can, absolutely. Awesome. So getting back to cryptos. <laughs> Well, so, so there, there's a neat tax benefit here that right now regulators haven't quite caught on to. So one, one good thing is that cryptos aren't technically considered security. So in the financial yeah. world, we have, to be we have to be considerate of wash rules, yeah. meaning that if you were to sell something at a loss, you have to wait 30 days before you can buy it back or that loss would be disallowed. Within, with cryptocurrencies at the moment, that, that's not a, something of consideration. So you could technically... Use this dip, dip, <laughs> bear market land. Bear, you can use this bear market in cryptos for that's happened for three days. You can use this ding and, and yeah. <laughs> this small dent in cryptocurrencies as an opportunity. Sell at a loss, buy it back immediately. Correct. Adjust your cost basis. Because the IRS is eventually going to come for your capital gains. It's just a dimple. Well, that, that's right. They are. So the likelihood, though, that they go re retroactive is probably small. Um, so keep that in mind. Um, the other oh, thing no, is— they won't, they, won't, they won't go retroactive. Yeah. But they are coming for your gains. Well, the other thing eventually. is that you have to be— you know, All these investments have to be have some type of economic substance, is what the IRS would, mm -hmm. would say. And so if not, they consider them sham investments. And I know I don't want to get you off on a tangent on this, but— if you can make a clear argument, which I think most people could at this moment, um, that you, you're going to be you're going to be okay here. But these are all things to watch for. Just one tip: this is a way to keep some money in your pocket, potentially uh, advert having to pay some additional taxes because you don't have that wash sale rule. Uh, this is kind of a, a good thing you can use to your advantage, right? And which is interesting too, the IRS is you know they're you know part of this whole big beef up of the IRS is to part of this is to get regulatory control over cryptocurrencies yep. so basically they can identify the owners right right now um you know i've got you know i've got a wallet that nobody knows i have right so it's you know out there in the midst of which is good know, and bad the internet right right yeah i mean it's it's just out there right and you can do anything you want with it i can transfer bitcoin to other anonymous people it's all anonymous that's that was the initial beauty of cryptocurrency. However, eventually, as we've talked about numerous times, and, and this is becoming more and more of a thing, the Treasury Department and the IRS and the NSA are going to want to know who owns what in terms of cryptocurrency because they want their taxes. And they also want the security of knowing you're not doing anything illegal with it. Right. And oh, so they're, they're coming for it. There's coming. no it's doubt just about a function it. function time. Yeah. Which, and that's going to really make, that's going to be the interesting development, right? Um, the ecosystem of cryptocurrency was supposed to be this anonymous currency, right, that was free of government control. But once it has government control, is it still, do people still have the appetite for it, right? And that's going to be the other question. So the adoption, again, you know, the long-term adoption of cryptocurrency as a medium of exchange, et cetera, is a lot of it's going to depend upon the adoption of individuals going, yeah, that's where I want to have my money. And again, you know, if I've got money in my savings account, it doesn't swing around 30 or 40% of the day. You know, when I, when I go to work in the morning, I come home in the afternoon, I don't want to log on to my savings account and go, wow, I just lost 40% of my savings. 
today. That's that's going to be the one of the biggest issues that has to get worked out over time. Well, it's the scarcity of, of Bitcoin, right? I mean, there's only so many of them in the world. But what happens when people decide that maybe this isn't a, a good mode of of currency, well, no, right? No, um, the, the scarcity is one of its attractive benefits, right? I mean, right. the whole problem with the dollar is that we can just keep printing dollars, and yep. we do, right? And so, you know, a dollar used to buy you a dollar's worth of goods back in 1900. Today, it buys you less than a nickel. Um, but that scarcity is also not good. I mean, we talk about how the different social demographic issues that we face in this country. Not everybody can get online and go buy Bitcoin. Not everybody can go have access to these things. So are we going to start providing Wi-Fi to homeless camps? And We're, we're already doing it. There's this whole, uh, the, I don't know if you saw the article yesterday. Uh, was it uh, Wisconsin, Brent, yesterday? This talk, it was uh, telling people not to call 911? Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. it was. I think it was Wisconsin, but the, the the police department was telling people not to call nine one one because the Starlink satellite system was was moving overhead, and it's a it's a train of five satellites, and it looks like lights in the sky, right, moving, and so they didn't want people calling saying it was UFOs. But no, this this is the whole purpose of this is, and this is the you know part of the infrastructure plan is also to build out five G wireless, mm -hmm. right? The whole goal of that is to get everybody in the country connected. Right. That's the goal. The goal is to get everybody online. Seven percent of the U.S. population right now is not online at all. And in the midst of a major market you know, crash and economic meltdown, they'll be the only survivors. Um, <laughs> That's exactly right. I know, I know a lot of you guys out there with those flip phones. Good for you. Yeah, they're the smart ones. Um, but, but yeah, so eventually everybody will get there. And the whole point is to get everybody into this banking system, right? Because how do I track people? I track people by their, by their monetary footprint, right? What you buy, what you sell. So getting people banked is extremely important in terms of being able to track what individuals are doing and, and, and controlling the flow of money and, and controlling where money moves. And that's a big component of what the government needs in order to, to retain control and power over the population is to control the movement of money. So yep. that's not conspiracy. That's just the way it works. So we, we do have another question, Lance, on YouTube. So let me get back here. It says, won't the new child tax credit be similar to a stimulus check and pump up the market around July? So that's a great question. I can answer a little bit of that. So July 15th, child tax credits historically um, has been $2,000, actually increasing to 3000 if you're under those income thresholds. Um, and if you have children under six, it's going to be up to $3,600. You get that additional $600. A year. A, a year. year. Correct. So you now, divide that. Well, so so the, to the question, does it pump up the market? The answer is no. Because a one, you're only getting thirty six hundred dollars or three thousand spread out over twelve months, so you get a little check. And if you're going back to work, you're going to be using that to spend on health, on childcare. And since childcare providers know you're about to get additional money, where do their prices go? Their prices go up. So no, that money won't go back into the economy or markets. So we'll go to childcare, and it won't have any real the, the net effect of that will be almost nil. Well, and so the interesting thing is now there are some different dynamics with this that are changing from the original tax credit. Right. One, this is going to be a refundable credit. Two, they're going to pay it on a monthly basis. So if you had three kids at 150 bucks a kid each month, you know, you're looking at a pretty substantial amount of income coming in. The issue is how do you take this away? You know, this is going to lift quite a few people above the um, poverty, the poverty line. line, but it's momentarily because you increase all the other costs that they're going to be using. the And also on. ends at the end of the year. It's well, only through December. Supposedly. Well, this is part of the whole 
infrastructure package, right? That infrastructure Correct. package contains the, the 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 bill to extend that for five years. Uh, Biden is going to Congress to try to ask Congress to extend it without the infrastructure bill, just to extend the child credit for fact five years. Uh, but right now, the way it sits, it ends at the end of the year. Correct. I, I think that they're going to push as hard as they can. This does. There are some ways they're trying to create that UBI, the universal basic income. Uh, this is going to go to 39 million households. Mm-hmm. 88% of U.S. children are going to be getting some type of, or families with kids are going to be getting some type of check. Right. It's pretty substantial. Yeah, no, it, it is. No, it's, it's, it's very substantial. And the question is, is will it wind back up in the markets? Not in the financial markets, because the price of living will go up. The price of childcare will go up, which will absorb that benefit. Wraps up the show for today. Danny, thank you so much. We'll be back tomorrow uh, with Michael Leibowitz. We'll get more into taper talk tomorrow, inflation, uh, what the Fed's doing with Michael tomorrow. So be sure and tune in then. Uh, That's what we do every Thursday. And, of course, uh, on Friday, Richard and Danny talking about financial planning and your money. That's coming up on the show this week. Lots of stuff. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Stay tuned. Our three minutes of markets and money hitting our YouTube channel here just shortly. So make sure you're subscribed at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. It's a rich man's world.